You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 227. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. One of the great things about starting this podcast and doing this podcast with you every week is that I feel like I get to learn something new every week. But, um, you know, sometimes I try to, you know, I don't always have the infinite all the time in the world. So sometimes I try to get away with a quick show on a topic that I already know something about. So I kind of sit down and I tell myself, all right, let's do a little research, do a 20 minute show. You already know most of this stuff. Just turn on the microphone and get going. But, uh, I was trying to do that this week, but, uh, but no, it didn't work out that way. Instead, today I uh, I went down an entire rabbit hole on an issue that um, an issue that we've honestly we've talked about this before on the program. We've talked about OpenAI. We've talked about large language models. Uh, we've talked about um, all of the drama within Google AI. Um, but today we're going to talk about the release of an AI agent from Google called Gatto. AI. I don't know if that's a reference to cat AI or or, or, or what it's doing, but um, this is uh, this has caused a bit of a stir in the um, in on, on on Twitter on the uh, you know on, in, in the um, in the in the AI press as we call it. And so I basically I did a little research today, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my thoughts on it. Uh, like some of my shows, I'm going to raise more questions than have answers about exactly what. Gato is and what it can do, um, but people tend to like that. People tend to like when I say, "Hey, I research these issues. These are kind of tough questions, and so what are the important things that we should be focusing on?" So, all right, let's go. Let me sort of bring you up to speed on what's going on. Google's DeepMind, their AI lab, they recently released an AI agent called Gato AI, and there is a lot being said about it. The hype surrounding it is that it approaches human-level intelligence and that they have cracked the ability to finally achieve general artificial intelligence. More on that later. And what is this uh, elusive general artificial intelligence we're after? Today, we're going to take a quick look at what Gato AI is, how it works, what it does, and what's been said about it. And hopefully, we'll follow up later in, in future episodes with more discussions on what this means for the development of artificial intelligence. So first of all, Let's start with the abstract of the paper that uh, Google put out about it. First, actually, let me get the title of the paper first. That's kind of uh, that's kind of important. Uh, so why don't I bring that up uh, first? The title of the paper is oh, it's a nice, simple title: a generalist agent. Okay, I like that. And then, of course, they have quite a few. Uh, it looks like twenty authors or something like that. Uh, so. Um, The abstract is, inspired by progress in large-scale language modeling, we apply a similar approach toward building a single generalist agent beyond the realm of text outputs. The agent, which we refer to as GATO, works as a multimodal, multitask, multi-embodiment generalist policy. I'll cut through all the all the, all the terminology in a bit. Uh, continuing, the same network with the same weights can play Atari, caption images, chat, stack blocks with a real robot arm, and much more, deciding based on its context whether to output text, joint torques, that's like, you know, what to do with the robot, button presses, or other tokens. In this report, we describe the model and the data 
and document the current capabilities of Gato. So that's a lot of words, but let's talk a little bit about generalization and what that means. I've worked on systems uh, personally that analyze language, and I've used systems that analyze images, uh, ConvNet, for example, you know, and convolutional neural nets is kind of the kind of the go-to way to do that. Um, what they're doing is taking uh, their approach of to large language models, which have been all the rage recently, and um, and uh, you know, training deep neural networks and, and a few other techniques I'll get to in a minute, and making it generic so that it works with all of these tasks, whether it's robotics, video games, or good old-fashioned text analysis and image analysis. So already we're getting some insights into their approach. While some systems might be as good as possible at one specific thing and gather as much data as possible on that thing, uh, Gatto tries to be good at a wide variety of things, and then essentially they reuse the technique that it's learned on each one to aid the others because they share the same model. So it's called multimodal, not multimodal, it's one model, multimodal. Uh, that term is kind of hard to suss out sometimes, so there's kind of two ways to analyze multimodal. There's, there's, there's this idea in... Um, in statistics called the mode of a data. You know, in school, you often learn, well, there's the mean, there's the median, and there's the mode. Uh, and, and the mode is um, the most likely uh, data point. So for example, if, uh, you know, what's the most likely score in, um, in, uh, in let, let's think of some low, low scoring game, like hockey. Maybe the most likely uh, score in hockey or soccer is zero. Uh, you know, the, the, for, for any given team and any given game. Uh, but it's certainly not the average score uh, because the, you know, the average score is going to be higher than zero. And it's probably not the median score either because, uh, well, it can't be the, unless more than 50% of, of endings are zero, then it would be the median score. Otherwise the median score is going to be harder. So it's like, it's like, okay, th there's the most, but if you're, if you're working with continuous data, and you have kind of a, a probability curve that looks kind of like a bell curve, the top of that curve is considered the mode. So sometimes you have multimodal data, and once you have a bunch of different bumps in it, and you're like, you could identify the top of each bump of, okay, those are different modes of the data, and they're kind of measures of centrality as to where a lot of the data points kind of stick to. And... Um, uh, those are that kind of data, that kind of multimodal data, you could say has, uh, has local maximums of data <laughs> where, you know, you have certain, uh, certain areas in the data set where you're like, hey, I see a cluster over here. And if I go in any direction, I see uh, less, of a, less of a cluster, less of a density of, of data. So those, those are often good candidates to say, hey, we're going to split this data into different classifications. And so this mode over here, this bump is, is, is one group, and this bump over here is a different group. Um, but uh, another way to analyze multimodal is that it could be that there are different modes of doing things, like there's image mode, there's video game mode, there's robotic mode, uh, that kind of thing. So I'm, I kind of wonder which one they're, they're going for here, but open question, are those kind of similar meetings? I, I, I kind of feel like, and I don't know if the, uh, the, the, the word mode or the, the, the name mode actually has anything to do with um, a, a mode of, uh, a mode as in like a, a state of things, but... Um, I think in this case, they end up kind of converging onto a similar meaning, which is very interesting. Um, so in terms of what they're doing, this is a sign of progress. 
and also a sign of scale, given that they're coming out of this. It means that they've gone a step above in the generalization ladder than has been done before. So they're not just reusing language models to learn different languages or to learn different dialects of languages, but they're reusing outputs from language models to learn image models and to learn robotic models and things like that. So that's a, that's, a, that's a step above in generalization. And it also means that they have enough data and resources to do it. So... Um, in other words, they're you know they're they're getting big tech, getting bigger and bigger, putting all this money into into Google research. So a few interesting things about this. First, uh, about the model itself. Before I get into all the controversy around it, um, we're dealing with sequential data here. So there's certainly something very common, for example, for language, where each word comes in sequence, and you can use the previous words to try to predict the next word. Uh, you can't predict the next word that someone is going to say exactly, of course, but you have an idea of what types of words might be coming in terms of grammar. And given the context, you might be sort of have an idea of, of where someone is going with something. You almost do it in your head and, and you think in your head of what someone is going to say. Uh, you might get the word you expect or one of the few words that you expect, or you might get a completely unexpected word. Our human response to an unexpected word kind of parallels the machine response to an unexpected word. A human response could be confusion, could be laughter. It's a good way of generating humor is when you give the opposite word or a completely different word than what the person is expecting. But it has to be kind of an expected unexpected word. It can't be a complete um, you know, nonsense where, oh, okay, now, now this person is just, uh, they, they started talking and now they're just talking gibberish, but... In, in the humor sense, it has to be they started talking and they sort of said something that flipped what I expected on its head. So if there's confusion, then what do we do? We might try to figure out what's going on. Maybe the speaker made a mistake. Maybe uh, the speaker did not make a mistake, but maybe we need to learn something new that we didn't know before. So that's the, that's the idea of something being surprising or something being uh, a very low probability event. And that's the track that, that Gatto will take. It specifically looks for areas in the data on which it places low probability, you know that's you know um, yeah, th that's using something called transformers. Uh, that's that's kind of encoding quote surprise, and you know they try to uh, train harder on those data uh, that are surprising without sacrificing what's already learned. So that's something that's very common in uh, successful machine learning. Um, you know, it's used in, you know for example in terms of. Um, some of the most successful uh, kind of basic ML toolkit is is um, gradient boosted trees where you're constantly building these decision trees and then looking at where it fails and you'll be like, okay, that's surprising. Let me try to build another decision tree that sort of uh, focuses on that on, on on those situations where my my current model fails. And so this is uh, one of the building blocks of Gato that is specifically talked about in these articles. Also on the sequential data, Rather than each word or image uh, fragmented um, and getting studied by the neural net directly, um, it appears from my quick reading that there's kind of a separate system for embedding these into a vector space, or in layman's terms, turning these things into a list of numbers that's more useful to the algorithm than um, than the data as is, which, by the way, is also a list of numbers. <laughs> you know, a, a word is a list of numbers uh, in terms of each letter representing a number, and, a, and an image is a list of numbers in terms of a list of pixels. But uh, um, these kind of uh, embed vector embeddings sort of turn it into a different 
uh, list of numbers that's actually a little bit more connected to the meaning of these things versus the the, the literal, you know, digital data that's coming in. So um, this is the best and most well-studied way of representing large-scale data, although I kind of, I personally have an aesthetic preference for trying to categorize data like words into a more human-readable and kind of a sensible way. In other words, like, you know, is there a way we can encode the actual meaning of the word versus just put it into a vector and say, hey, this vector represents the meaning, even though, uh, you know, <laughs> some of these uh, components of the vectors, um, you know, might have um, no kind of understandable meaning, but it's just the algorithm is placing things together that look similar. Uh, perhaps in the future, both systems will be reconciled, but, you know, I have to admit that the uh, that the uh, um, these vector embeddings are currently uh, very successful. So uh, Nando de, de Feitas, and I apologize if I pronounce that wrong, he's a research director at DeepMind, so one of the developers, he posted on Twitter that he thinks, quote, the game is over in terms of finding general AI. So we have to go over a few things. Why did he, 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 uh, why did he write this? This is in response to an article, so we have to get into that article. And what's his bio, and and, and what exactly did he tweet along with this? So first of all, um, let's talk about the article that he is responding to. Uh, he thinks that uh, that their team is on the cusp of AGI, and he's responding to a Next Web article uh, that was about DeepMind when it came out, entitled. DeepMind's astounding new Gato AI makes me fear humans will never achieve um, AGI, uh, general intelligence. Uh, this uh, article says it's arguably uh, Gato is, most, is the most impressive all-in-one uh, machine learning kit the world has seen yet. It says that Gato is basically taking the same approach of Large language models is used by, for example, GPT-3 and OpenAI. Huge data, huge model, model, basically a giant brute force and applying it to other areas besides language. So just stopping there, from my point of view, and from the point of view of the author, it sounds like there's value in that. So I don't see anything wrong. Um, and the author, who is uh, Kristen Green, agrees this is going to make a lot of money for Google. This is a very This could be a very successful product. Uh, very business success, but he does add that Gato and GPT-3 are no more viable entry points for artificial general intelligence than the above-mentioned virtual assistants. He says its ability to perform multiple tasks is more like a video game console that can store 600 different games than it's like a game you can play 600 different ways. It's not general AI. It's a bunch of pre-trained, narrow models bundled neatly he adds, that's not a bad thing if that's what you're looking for, but there's simply nothing in Gato's accompanying research paper to indicate uh, this is even a glance in the right direction for AGI, artificial general intelligence, much less a stepping stone. At some point, the goodwill and capital that companies such as DeepMind and OpenAI have generated through their steely eye insistence that AGI was just around the corner will have to show even the tiniest of dividends. So, that he seems pretty clear. How do we evaluate uh, a statement like this that uh, Gato is not 
AGI, sometimes that's very difficult to suss out. And I think we sometimes have to take a step back and say, well, how do we evaluate this? How do we, how do we measure this? So just like when we had our discussions on this show about whether we can say that a model actually understands what it's doing or understands language versus merely statistically memorizing it, is there a difference? I suspect we can make that distinction, but it's hard to put into writing in practice. So I don't think that... Um, you know, it, it it's hard to say that it's it's it, it's hard to uh, evaluate um, what he's saying. That this is not AGI on its own term, but I also don't think that we can rely on the people who created Gato. They probably want to believe they are on the path to AGI. Almost all machine learning researchers want to believe that. I know I certainly do. They probably know more about AI than most people in the world. But they are also a source of a bias source of you know kind of marketing their own product. So now I also want to mention uh, before we get into uh, the response, I want to mention a new scientist piece that was written after this back and forth between the Next Web and Google employees, and that's from uh, New Scientist. New Scientist has an article titled "Is Deep Minds Gato AI Really a Human Level Intelligence Breakthrough?" Subtitled. DeepMind has released what it calls a generalist AI called Gato that can perform 600 tasks, but does this mean it is truly intelligence by Matt Sparks? So I like this particular piece because uh, he talks about how we even define uh, general intelligence, which is obviously, without asking this question, we're totally lost. So it turns out, and we knew this, and all, all the listeners of this show knew this, that it's not even clear how to define general artificial intelligence. So um, here's, the, uh, here, here's what he writes in, this, in, this, uh, in, in New Scientist. Outside science fiction, AI is limited to niche tasks. It has seen plenty of success recently in solving a huge range of problems from writing software to protein folding and even creating beer receipts. But individual AI models have limited specific abilities. A model trained for one task is little use for another. Um, which, of course, you know, now, now that we have this, this general model, we're saying, no, these are actually very, these are connected. Uh, continuing, AGI is a term used for a model that can learn any intellectual task that a human being can. Gary Marcus at U.S. software firm Robust.ai says the term is shorthand. Uh, it's not a single magical thing, but roughly, we mean systems that can flexibly, resourcefully solve problems that they haven't seen before and do so in a reliable way. So he mentions later on, you know, what are some tests for AGI? Alan Turing's, uh, the, the, the Turing test uh, is a good example. Alan Turing famously suggested that the AI should have to pass as human in a text conversation. Steve Wozniak says that um, he'll consider AGI to be real if it can enter a random house and figure out how to make a cup of coffee. Uh, other proposed tests are sending an AI to university and see if it can pass a degree or testing whether it can carry out real world jobs successfully. All of those, by the way, have their problems. That's why nobody says, I found the answer. All of those are kind of hand wave. Well, look, I mean, random house and figure out how to make a cup of coffee. That's very difficult because it has to know where the kitchen is. It has to know where the coffee machine is, what a coffee machine it has to be a full robot. Um, but uh, honestly, if, if you just see a robot that does just that, but really can't figure much out is else out, is that AGI? I don't know. Or in, or are we claiming that the development of such a robot 
um, would presuppose AGI because it's such a difficult problem. I think a lot of problems are like that. So maybe it's true. My favorite quote uh, comes from Jan LeCun, who actually was my former professor at NYU in this article. He writes, Jan LeCun, chief AI scientist at Facebook's owner Meta, says there is no such thing because even humans are specialized. In a recent post, he said that a human-level AI may be a useful goal to aim for where AI can learn jobs as needed like a human would, but that we just aren't there yet. We still don't have a learning paradigm that allows machines to learn how the world works like human and many non-human babies do. He wrote, the solution is not just around the corner. We have a number of obstacles to clear and we don't know how. One of the driving forces behind the current success of AI research is scale. More and more computer power is being used to train ever larger models on increasingly large sets of data. The discovery that simple scaling up provides such power is surprising, and we are yet to see any signs that more power, more data, and larger models won't keep providing more capable AI, but many researchers are skeptical that this will lead to a conscious or even general AI. So I, I honestly, I don't know if it's that surprising that more data leads to more impressive models, although maybe uh, the rate at which it does is surprising. But, you know, is that, does that scale infinitely? Can you just keep scaling up your data? You know, big data is good. Bigger data is better. Does that mean that we just, the, the future is always just trying to get more and more, uh, just larger and larger data sets? Does this scale infinitely until we reach human level intelligence? Or is there something else our brains are doing? Because, you know, we don't really have infinite data um, available to ourselves and we're learning. So shouldn't you be able to learn with, with less data? And, and isn't that more of a sign of scale? So I'm going to continue with the article. Um, Nando de Freitas, DeepMind, tweeted that the game is over when Gato was released and suggested that achieving AGI was now simply a matter of making AI models bigger and more efficient and feeding more training data in it. But others aren't so sure. Marcus says Gato was trained to do each and every one of the tasks it can do, and that faced with a new challenge, it wouldn't be able to logically analyze and solve that problem. These are like parlor tricks, he said. Parlor tricks, by the way, sorry to cut out from my reading, as I often do. Parlor trick is, um, is, uh, is, is definitely a term that I've heard applied to AI a lot, and it's often applied to statistical models. Uh, statistical models were some, sometimes efficiently... Uh, um, uh, um, statistics that are advanced enough start to look like like magic, but those are maybe called parlor tricks. And I think that's a sign of saying, hey, yes, the statistical model looks like magic, but it's not really getting what it's doing. And that's going to make it harder for it to analyze or to, uh, to generalize. So uh, um, Marcus says... Uh, these are like parlor tricks. They're cute. They're magician's tricks. They're able to fool unsophisticated humans who aren't trained to understand these things, but that doesn't mean they're actually anywhere near artificial general intelligence. Oliver Lemon at uh, Harriot Watt University in Edinburgh says the claim that the game is over isn't accurate and that Gato is not AGI. Uh, by the way, uh, the original Posting Twitter doesn't claim that Gato is AGI either. It just claims that this is the this is the way to get there if we just scale this up. Uh, anyway, uh, Lemon writes these models do really impressive things. However, a lot of the cool examples you see are cherry picked. They get exactly the right input uh, to lead to impressive output. So, um, 
what has Gato achieved? I'm just going to read the last section of this article because I think almost all of this article is great. It's a short article, but uh, it's got a lot of good information in this. Good job on this with the new scientist. Um, even DeepMind's own scientists are skeptical of the claim being made by some about Gato. David Pau, a staff research scientist at DeepMind, tweeted, I genuinely don't understand why people seem so excited by the Gato paper. They took a bunch of independently trained agents, then amortized all of their policies into a single network that doesn't seem in any way surprising. But Lemon said the new model, like of, and others like it, are creating surprisingly good results. And that, uh, and I'd like to know what uh, surprisingly good results means. Um, and that training an AI to accomplish varied tasks may eventually create a solid foundation of general knowledge on which more adaptable model could be based. I'm sure deep learning is not the end of the story, he says. There'll be other innovations coming along to fill in some gaps that we currently have in creativity and interactive learning. All right. So um, let's uh, let's talk about the – let's now return to the tweets from Google employee Nando de Freitas. It's very simple. It's just two tweets I want to read. He was responding to all of these comments saying, like, this is not – that impressive. This is not general AI. Or actually, they're kind of saying it is impressive, but it isn't general AI. Um, uh, Defreitas writes, my opinion, it's all about scale now. The game is over. It's about making these models bigger, safer, compute efficient, faster at sampling, smarter memory, more modalities, innovative data. Solving these scaling challenges is what will deliver uh, artificial general intelligence. Research focused on these problems, um, for example, S4 for greater memory is needed. Philosophy about symbols is not. Symbols are tools in the world, and big nets have no issue creating them and manipulating them. So interestingly enough, he does wade into what's called the symbolic wars. Can you believe there are so many wars that go on? Like, you know, not real wars, but medical, metaphysical war, you know, like Bayesian versus frequentist, and now we have symbolic versus statistical. Um, that's just, uh, <laughs> we could probably do a whole episode on the symbolic wars. Maybe I'll write that down. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll get into it. But essentially, uh, right now, statistical machine learning is kind of at its height. It's almost seemed to have won the symbolic wars, um, but um, there are still machine learning uh, 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 um, techniques that are based on manipulating symbols rather than you know doing kind of these vector embeddings. Uh, Pedro Domingo, for example, he's the author of the Ma uh, Master Algorithm, who has researched many different forms of AI. He would disagree with this um, and say that you know he thinks that symbolic representation will make a, a, a comeback. Um, symbolic representation versus vector representation. We'll come back to that. I'm not sure how much I have to say on that today. So Freitas is the, uh, is the expert, uh, and um, how can he be wrong? Well, always be skeptical of a scientist who says that their approach is the only approach for solving a problem and that the answer is going to be Bigger budgets, bigger machines, bigger teams, bigger everything. Yes, that's scale in a sense. And sometimes you have a kind of a small prototype of a product that works. And you can see, hey, if we scale this up with lots of funding, it'll work. Um, but it's also kind of failing to scale. It's failing to do more with less, which is often a source of innovation as well. So um, I'm, when I say be skeptical, I'm not saying he's wrong by any objective count, but we need more evidence. Um, also, keep in mind, and this is kind of an aside, 
that many of these researchers seem to have an ideological agenda, and the more you read their papers and their bios, uh, the more it becomes clear. Freitas, for example, he has a uh, he prominently displays his pronouns in his bio and all of his political uh, affiliations, as do just about all the researchers as at Google. And this ideology permeates all of their research. I'm not saying it's bad research. I'm not saying there's all wrong stuff in it, but it's permeated with their ideology. One example of that is uh, is the paper on their their language data set, and I'll link to that on archive. It's called Scaling Language Models, Methods, Analysis, and Insights from Training Gopher, which I guess is another large language model. And um, this is uh, this has about a thousand authors on it. Uh, it looks like we're just proliferating with authors. I mean, how much, if, if you're one of like a billion authors that wrote something, how much did you actually write? I mean, I guess this is, they just put the whole team on there. All right. Well, that's... Uh, I wonder if you could kind of separate who's the authors versus who's the team uh, on a paper. It probably seems like a, a reasonable thing to do rather than, because you kind of want to know who wrote it versus who worked on it. But nope, everybody gets to, everybody pile on in the author sections. Anyway, that's an aside. <laughs> that, that's not that's not anywhere related to the point that I'm trying to make, but it's just kind of funny. Um, the goal is uh, of this paper, so... Uh, this paper is talking about how they trained a language model, which is related to uh, what Gato is doing. And the goal is to train on a diverse array of English language examples. Good idea. They want different contexts. So, for example, they have some from Wikipedia, some from emails, some from Twitter. Uh, they have different dialects. Um, people speak English in different ways. Again, great idea. Diversify the data. Then they start talking about toxicity. Okay, so that's related to spam. That's related to unwanted um, content on, on Twitter and that kind of thing. And they're very focused on preventing toxic language. Okay, uh, that seems to be... Look, I did that at Foursquare. I, had a, uh, I, I, I trained models that were spammy. I trained models to find tips that were spammy. I trained models to find tips that were used in incendiary language, but... They seem to be, they seem to be put an uh, an incredible amount of weight on this problem. Okay, but then they start pairing it into bias language, not biased data sets like I was talking about in my paper. Um, and they actually talk about that too because they, um, you know, they're trying to not have a biased data set by gathering all sorts of different dialects, dialects, and all sorts of different examples of English, but. They sort of segue into it into bias language, and I, I and it almost seems like they kind of take one topic, which is which is good to talk about, and conflate it with another one, which is like okay, essentially bad bad language. We don't want people using this language because it's bias. They have a very specific opinion on how people should talk about issues, how people should use gender, how people should talk about social issues, and what people should, uh, what words people should use to describe things. And they want to make sure that this opinion is represented in this model. And they don't talk about it directly, but I know a lot of this is motivated by the idea that they're going to correct people's language and kind of sort of use their AI to become the thought police, uh, which they see as building 
a better world. So looks like it's sort of jarring that the top research in this field is dominated in this way, but that's where we are. They kind of have the tools to make themselves into supervillains at some point. Uh, so <laughs> that's where we are. It's concerning. I don't know what to do about it. Um, if you have any ideas, let me know. I wish I could say I'm, I'm working on a competitor here, but I'm just a guy starting a programming language in newmap.ai right now. It doesn't have any of the scale, which you know, I hope I eventually start to do symbolic learning and then finally statistical learning, but it'll be a while. But I'm guessing it'll be a different domain that, that, than this. Uh, I actually like what Jan LeCun had to say, which I hope is right, that there's room for many different kinds of AI because humans themselves specialize and AI itself will specialize as well. So it's, uh, it's great to build general AIs and then maybe we incorporate those ideas uh, across the, the, the marketplace of, of, of um, machine learning research and then uh, systems will kind of specialize from there. So that's kind of the, the, the primer on what's going on with Gato and, and, the, and Google research and the images around this. I hope it was helpful. More questions than answers, I know. What do you think? Let's talk about this on our, our locals, maximum.locals.com. Uh, if you want to weigh in, um, looking forward to hearing what you guys think about this. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at LocalMaxRadio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel, feel the power.